I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is such an exciting episode. My guest for today needs no introduction. We are talking with Sonia Renee Taylor, who is the author of the book, The Body is Not an Apology. I really have nothing more to say about this except for wait till you hear her message, her voice, what her thoughts are, what she has to say. It is really powerful. All right, everyone, let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. We are in for such a show. This episode is special for two reasons. One, it is our 50th episode, and I am so proud to be sharing this with all of you. And two, our guest for the 50th episode is Sonia Renee Taylor. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I want to like cue the horns at 50, like, <laughs> right? It's amazing. It's fun. It's really fun. And what's fun is I not only get to sit with beautiful souls like yourself, I get to share this with others. And so this is really fantastic. So Sonia, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, um, anything that you want to share? And then we are just going to jump right into this podcast. Absolutely. Um, so I'm Sonia Renee Taylor. I am the founder and radical executive officer of The Body is Not an Apology, a digital media and education company exploring the intersection of body identity and social justice using a radical self-love framework. I'm an author, I'm an activist, I'm a serious macaroni and cheese maker. I am a current resident of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, And yeah, and I love talking about love and justice and bodies and how we can be better humans to other humans. I wanna say that your book, I, I felt tears in my eyes throughout the entire time that I was reading it. And they, they're not tears of sadness. They're, they almost felt like tears of liberation and beauty and just expansion. And so I think I just wanted to start with that, Sonia. Like it, I, I, I not only read it, and th- this is something that's funny because I'm going to read a part of your book, but what I want to tell listeners is your marketing or publishers or whatnot sent me the book a a few weeks ago. I was so excited to read it. And I happened to be more tired than I'd ever been. You know, the times when like your eyes are burning. And so I got through like a quarter of the book, half of the book. And I thought, 
I got to put this down. I can't, first of all, it's so powerful and I don't want to miss one minute of it. And then I went, wait a minute, I need to listen to it on audio because Sonia, very few authors, or maybe I'm, I'm, I don't know this, but not all authors do the narration of their book. I closed my eyes and listened to you narrate this book for days. And it was powerful. I was almost glad that my eyes were too tired to read. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's one of my favorite sort of visual. <laughs> I mean, sorry, it, this may be weird, but I'm like, I love the idea of thinking that I'm just laying next to some complete stranger reading about radical self-love to them. It brings me a lot of joy. So I love that. I love that you did that. That's seriously how it felt. That's how it felt. We're going to get into the book. I also want, so I want to let listeners know. Okay. So obviously, and, and, and I loved, I, I saw you on another talk and you're like, I'm going to say this with pride. It's a New York Times bestseller. The reason why it's so amazing, Sonia, is that this message has become a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, yeah. That's what matters to me. It's like, it's, it's that all of a sudden this idea has arrived at a place where more people than I certainly ever imagined necessarily are like, oh, there might be there might be a path to freedom for me inside of this work. And that that fills my heart up. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So what I would like to do, there are so many things in the book that I want to talk about. Um, and and so for listeners to know, I was talking to Sonia before we before we started the episode and I said, I know you must have heard this opening so many times, but not everybody has heard this. And so I said to Sonia, I hope it's okay. I want to start with the opening of your book. And so um, I am going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let Sonia lay back and I'm going to read to her this time. So, so I am going to read the opening of this book. Here we go. It was on a hotel bed in this city, preparing for this odd game that I uttered the words, your body is not an apology for the first time. My team was a kaleidoscope of bodies and identities. We were a microcosm of a world I would like to live in. We were black, white, Southeast Asian. We are able-bodied and disabled. We were gay, straight, bi, and queer. What we brought to Knoxville that year were the stories of living in our bodies and all their complex tapestries. We were complicated and honest with each other. And this is how I wound up in conversation with my teammate, Natasha, an early 30-something living with cerebral palsy and fearful she might be pregnant. Natasha told me how her potential pregnancy was most assuredly by a guy who was just an occasional fling. All of life was up in the air for Natasha, but she was abundantly clear that she had no desire to have a baby and not by this person. One of my many career iterations of the past was as a sexual health and public health service provider. This background made me notorious for asking people about their safer sex practices, handing out condoms, and offering sexual health harm reduction strategies. Instinctually, I asked Natasha why she had chosen to not use a condom with this casual sexual partner with whom she had no interest in procreating. Neither Natasha or I knew that my honest question and her honest answer would be the catalyst for a movement. 
Natasha told me her truth. My disability makes sex hard already with positioning and stuff. I just didn't feel like it was okay to make a big deal about using a condom. When we hear someone's truth and it strikes some deep part of our humanity, our own hidden shames, it can be easy to recoil into silence. We struggle to hold the truths of others because we have so rarely had the experience of having our own truths held. Social researcher and expert on vulnerability and shame, Brene Brown says, if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame can't survive. I understood the truth Natasha was sharing. Her words pricked some painful underbelly of knowing in my own body. My entire being rang in resonance. I was transported to all the times I had given away my own body in penance. A reel of memory scrolled through my mind of all the ways I told the world I was sorry for having this wrong, bad body. It was from this deep cave of mutual vulnerability that the word spilled from me. Natasha, your body is not an apology. It is not something you give to someone to say, sorry for my disability. She began to weep. And for a few minutes, I just held my maybe pregnant friend as she contemplated the fullness of what those words meant for her life and her body. The words I said to Natasha in that hotel room were as much for me as they were for her. I was also telling myself, Sonia, your body is not an apology. I get chills when I read that. Mm. This might be a, a funny question, but what does it sound like to hear it read to you? Your words that are so beautiful and vulnerable and authentic. What does it feel like? Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful experience, and I I think there are two feelings that were really present. Present one was like, oh, I wrote, I wrote that. That's a real good prologue. <laughs> I was like, I like that writing, which isn't always the case when I reflect on my writing. So that was cool, but also like, it's beautiful to watch those lessons um, live in someone else's mouth, right? Like that I know as you're reading it, there's an experience that you are having with the words um, that is about your own journey and getting to witness that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Scorpio. So I'm naturally voyeuristic. Are you a Scorpio too? So am I. Yes! Oh, honey. It's your birthday. November 17th. When is yours? November 12th. Yes. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, Okay. I love it. <laughs> so, you know, we, we like to be in the inner journeys of other people sometimes. And so there is something really beautiful about just getting to watch and, and sort of intuitively feel your own inner journey as you share those words. That, that was really present too. And I think what, what your message is so, is so important and so profound. And, you know, listen, I could quote every page of your book, but I'm not going to, because I'm sure that's not what you would like or what listeners need. But 
you talk about the fact that, you know, we were born amazed by our bodies. We were not born. You reference, and, and again, right in the very beginning, babies do not look at their thighs and go, oh my God, look at my thighs. They're just amazed that they have movement. When we were young and you write about when you're waiting to go outside to play for recess and that excitement that your body, what happened, Sonia, from your perspective, what happened to all of us? Because every one of us had that experience as children. Yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we, we arrived here, and this is what I talk about in the book, we arrived here as love. We arrived here in right relationship with our bodies and in right relationship with the bodies of others. But we live in a society that profits off of our disconnection with our own bodies and that establishes power and resource and privilege and um, domination um, through convincing us that somehow we are not good enough and convincing us that there are other people who are also not good enough and that you know we have to figure out how to situate ourselves in this ladder of not good enough. And so those messages, and those messages are both social, they're cultural, they're political, they're economic, they are across the spectrum of, of societal existence. Those messages and those actions are how we become suspicious of whether or not we should believe that we are inherently enough. And we should become suspicious about whether or not other people are inherently enough. And so, yeah, I think that rather than, you know, oftentimes people relate to radical self-love like a thing you have to figure out how to get. Like I gotta figure out how to get radical self-love. And what I offer is that the work is not to figure out how to get radical self-love, the work is to figure out how do I remove all the layers that are between me and my inherent state of being, which is radical self-love? Um, how do I return to myself um, that which I already am and have always been? Uh, and I think that's a process of de-indoctrination. Yeah. I wonder what that makes me think of. If, if you could speak to, it's, it's too big. This, this whole, it's too big. I don't, I, I can't take on capitalism. I can't take on the diet industry. I can't take on ageism, sexism, homophobia. I can't. And what you talk about in your book is that's not, and unless I heard it wrong, that's not what it's about. It's about if you go inward and apply that to yourself, this self-love, your body is not an apology. All of this stuff, it actually radiates out of you. And like a ripple effect, it starts getting to other, the message starts getting to other people. Did I say that correctly? Or is there any? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're, you're there, but I think that it's even closer. So those systems, I can't with capitalism. I can't, like it's too big with, ageism and ableism and homophobia and, you know, fat phobia and racism, it's too big. What those systems, what I'm proposing is that those systems are us. They are in us. They are, they are the indoctrination. They're the thing. When you said, what happened between me, the little baby, and now what happened? What happened are those systems in us, those, those beliefs and the ways in which they get 
they're macro, right? They are policy and legislation and all those things, but they're also micro in the sense that they are everyday beliefs and choices and actions that we have adopted, that we have been, you know, indoctrinated to believe and to move through the world with. And so when we turn our gaze inward, what we're doing is saying, my job isn't to dismantle the system out in the world. My job is to dismantle the system inside of me. My job is to say, where where has the system of ableism disconnected me from my sense of worthiness uh, or my understanding of other people's worthiness? Where's the system of racism disconnected me from my sense of worthiness or my belief about other people's worthiness? How do I start to de-indoctrinate myself from that system? Because when I remove myself, when I, when I take that system out of me, I take that system out of the structure in the world. And if we all take, we are all a brick in that building, in that edifice. As soon as I remove myself and other people remove themselves, the building crumbles. Yeah. That reminds me, you had mentioned something somewhere either in your book or in one of the talks that you did, you call it a body-based hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And that's, go ahead. I'm sorry, you were going to say something about that or? Yeah. So, you know, we refer to it as sort of the ladder of bodily hierarchy. And I invite us to really visualize it as there is a, we live in a world that says some bodies are better than other bodies, right? Literally like get in your brain, like, bodies. What kind of bodies are there in the world? There are black bodies. There are fat bodies. There are queer bodies. There are disabled bodies. There are older bodies. There are all these kinds of bodies. And then we, through all kinds of messages, are told some of these bodies are better than other bodies, right? And we can visualize in our brains, oh yes, here's here's where my body lives. What are the bodies that are above mine? What does society say are better bodies than mine? What does society say are not better bodies? There are worse bodies than mine. That helps you understand your position on the ladder of bodily hierarchy. And the work then is to say, first of all, what if all that's a lie? <laughs> what if all the story, what if everything about what they've told me about better bodies and not better bodies is a complete and total lie to exploit and manipulate me for power and profit? <laughs> okay, that's not true. All right, now what ways have I believed it? What things have I done to reaffirm myself on this ladder? What things am I still doing every single day to try to like get up a rung? What are those things? And how do I start shifting that? Because as soon as I stop trying to climb the ladder, the ladder becomes obsolete. What do you tell people? How, I'm also imagining people saying, you know, while we're sitting here talking and they're thinking, this all sounds great. How the hell do I get there? What do you tell people? You, you know, you talk in the book about the three pieces and the four pillars. Like, is is that, could you share a little bit about that? And talk about your workbook that just came out because that is amazing and can be an incredible tool to get there. Go ahead. Exactly. So I think my intention with both the book and the workbook um, was to give people those practical tools, to not have us just be like, all right, Sonia, thanks for this this theoretical framework that I have no idea how to apply to my regular life. It's like, and part of what I include in the book are um, radical reflections and unapologetic inquiries. They are points in the book where I say, all right, stop and don't read this book like 
I'm just reading a book, stop and read this book like, oh, I'm going to practice a thing. And what, how does this particular section, theory, concept apply to you in your life? How about you get intimate with your own experience? And so in the beginning of the book, I talk about the three pieces and I offer them as what in this, uh, in this question of like, well, all right, Sonia, how do we get to this radical self-love world that you're offering? How do I start to practice radical self-love? And I offer that there are three things that sort of set the foundation to begin the practice of the work. The first is to make peace with not understanding. Um, and part of the reason it's so necessary to make peace with not understanding is because we live in a society that shames you for not understanding. If you don't understand something, you're wrong, you're dumb, you're, you know, failing. And so what that does is it calcifies our curiosity. It calcifies our willingness to move toward the unknown with a sense of wonder, right? And so if you're not willing to move toward the unknown, given how deeply buried radical self-love is inside of us, you'll never take the journey. You'll be too like, I nope, I don't understand it. Now I feel confused, which must mean I'm dumb. So I'm not doing it, right? And we see that in society on a regular basis. And so this is an invitation to say, I don't understand and I don't need to understand to show up with curiosity, with wonder and with love. Um, and it's really important in terms of how we experience each other because so much of these systems of oppression rely on the experience of othering people and we other people through through saying I don't understand you and so you must be something different than me you must be and usually different means less than me right and so it's really important for us to be like I don't understand and that doesn't make you less than me and it doesn't make me wrong it just means I don't understand and and that's okay so that's the first piece. The second piece is to make peace with difference. Again, this idea that different means bad, that different means um, outside, not belonging, you know, something to be marginalized. And part of the, I believe the challenge with making peace with difference is that we really live inside of this notion of scarcity, which is like, if it's different, it's not part of me. And if it's not part of me, it's gonna take something from me, right? That there's there's limited whatever, there's limited resource, there's limited love, there's limited time, there's limited whatever. And in the book I talk about, in the, in the first book, uh, in the first edition of the book, in the uh, 10 Tools for Radical Self-Love, which is now the workbook. So I took all those 10 tools, I took them out, I expanded them and I put them in a workbook. And inside of that, I talk about the importance of beginning to, to play with the idea of um, just because, like, I don't have to believe something totally yet to try on a new idea. So I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to be fully invested in scarcity is a myth. People are like, scarcity, my bank account said $5 and that's not a myth. <laughs> what my bank account <laughs> and so the fine right like you can but you can practice what if the five dollars in my bank account is not the only thing ever right like what if that doesn't mean five dollars will only be in my bank account for the rest of my life right what if what if scarcity is just not true now again you don't have to believe it yet it's a it's a thing to try on again if we're willing to explore the unknown then we we open up some expanse 
And so trying on this idea that scarcity is not true gives me the opportunity to say, well, then things that I think are different aren't here to take anything from me. I'm not going to lose something by inviting difference as a valuable part of life. I can actually point out other places where we really value difference. I, not everyone has a bull mastiff as a pet because <laughs> there are other breeds of dogs and we love them all. And we love the dogs that have all kinds of breeds in them. And we love the kinds that are just poodles and golden retrievers and da da da. We love all kinds of trees and all kinds of flowers. And there isn't any area of ecological experience where we expect sameness except inside of humans, which is silly. <laughs> you I know. know. I know. And so when we invite ourselves into that process, that's also creates some opening to be like, well, then good. I, if, if difference isn't bad, then what makes me different isn't bad. Right. And then the last piece, the last piece is uh, to make peace with our own body and through making peace with not understanding and making peace with difference that gives us the building blocks to say, all right, well, if, if I don't have to understand it all and difference is cool, then what can I what can I bring to understanding my own being, my own experience in this body? How can I reconcile all the stories I was told about how I was bad and wrong? All the stories I told about how I was too different in this way, all the stories that I was told about how this particular way that I am doesn't make sense to anybody. How can I welcome that part back to myself as part of the miraculous tapestry that is our humanity? So those are the those are the things to begin to play with when we want to move towards like, how do I move through radical self-love? But the workbook takes all of that and then says, all right, I'm going to give you five activities for you to practice over the next week to begin to do that. I'm going to give you this idea, this framework of how to divest from some of the messages that you hear every day so you can create some mental space. And then I'm going to give you some things to help you develop what you want to plug in to that space that is a radical self-love action. So I really try to walk us through that so that we don't feel like, all right, thanks for this theory lesson, Sonia, and that's not in the wind. You know? Yeah. And I also want to say, as you were talking, I started getting this like sensation and I thought, oh my gosh, maybe that's one of the reasons why I got tearful throughout the book. Well, there's, there's many, and, I, and I'll talk about them. That when you talk about the three pieces, the, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but like, you know, we have this idea that if we are different, we are bad, we are wrong, we try to fit in all these things. And then, and I'm also really simplifying what you're saying. And then sort of like getting to this peace part where we're open. And I realized that was my whole journey through my eating disorder and my recovery. My eating disorder grew out of a number of different things, not just one, but one of the major ones was I didn't feel like I fit in. You talk about the default body. I didn't have that. So I automatically internalized there's something wrong with me, not I am different and isn't that beautiful. They are different, isn't that beautiful. It's they all look alike in my mind's eye and probably in reality from where I grew up. And different is wrong. 
And I, I, again, I think the tears that I was experiencing while I was reading the book is just this like love and compassion that I have for myself that now I know, first of all, poor younger me who thought that and how beautiful it is now to live in my difference, my uniqueness, and forgive me for saying this, but without an apology. Exactly. No, you should no need to be forgiven for saying that. And that's exactly what I hope everyone will say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I also, uh, I, by the way, I cry a lot. I'm a tearful person. Um, it's just my way of releasing. And I feel a lot of sadness for the world. It's one of the reasons why I'm a therapist. I, I feel a lot of sadness. I want to do my part and see what I can do to help. And there is so much of this, um, there's just so much human suffering in this default body, this, if you are not the same race, if you are not the same socioeconomic class as me, if you are not the same gender, if you are not the same, there's so much that it's, it's painful to really observe it once you've stepped out of it and, and have dropped into another way, it makes me really sad. It's also why I love the work that I do. I love when people say, I don't fit in. And I say, great, what are the parts that don't fit in? I want, I want to hear all about them. Let's nourish them. What are they? So I, I don't know. I just went off on a little ramble, but that that's just what was- I love that ramble. And I think that it's such an important reflection is, you know, and I think this is true for many people in varying kinds of recovery is, that there is the the awakening to the the idea that like oh right i i was situating myself i was trying to situate myself on the ladder right i was trying to understand myself in the context of a world that says there's a right way and a wrong way to be and i was questioning me instead of questioning that message and that's the goal of radical self love the goal of this workbook is to say no, it's not you. You're not, you are fine. <laughs> and the question is who told you that and why you believe them? <laughs> That's the goal is to get us to start saying, where did I get this message that this body was somehow wrong or that this body doesn't belong or that that body doesn't belong? And why would we be, why would we be being told that? And for what purpose? And how is, and is that harming or helping people? And what do I want to be a part of? I want to be a part of what helps people. So I might need to divest from that particular message. And so it's about returning the responsibility of um, the story of deficiency to its rightful owners, which is a system that thrives off of us feeling deficient and not enough and not internalizing that in, anymore. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit about the body shame project complex. Yes, the the body shame profit complex, which is all of the systems, all of the structures that that make a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money to tell you that you're not good enough. Wait, I want to say more. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. You you didn't say enough. I didn't have enough lotas. You're right. <laughs> I had to add some more lotas. Okay, keep going. There are a lot of lotas, <laughs> and the intention is like we become an endless 
um, reservoir of profit if we never ever feel good enough. We are, we are, a, it's like tapping into the gold rush in the early 1900s. It's like, oh, we have, we've struck gold <laughs> because we can tell you that you are failing in some way. And then we can sell you a product that doesn't actually work <laughs> so that you think you are failing, right? So that you think you're failing, you think you're fixing it and then you don't fix it. Or like you fix it for a little bit, but it changes and goes right back to what it was. And so now you've got to reinvest. Whatever it is, we become this endless loop of, of economic opportunity for folks who profit off of having you think you're deficient. And that is the body profit, um, the body shame profit complex. It is inside of the weight loss industry is deeply rooted in it. Unfortunately, there's so much of the fitness and wellness industry that is rooted in it. Um, you know, there are so many aspects of um, our medical industry and our pharmaceutical industries that are rooted in it. There's so much about our fashion industries and our, um, yeah, I mean, pretty much you can find operations of it in any sector of for-profit life because the body shame profit complex is so deeply intertwined with capitalism. Uh, so you can find it anywhere. It's basically anytime someone's like, buy this because it'll make you better. <laughs> and then you buy it and you're not better, right? And it never fills the hole. And it never fills the hole because it wasn't designed to fill the hole. It was designed to continue to, um, you know, gorge your pockets <laughs> uh, and, and keep your sense of deficiency firmly intact. Yeah. Let me ask you a question because one of the things you brought up, and this may be a too broad of a question, you said something about the medical establishment. I I have a client who was very sick over the last like two weeks or whatnot. She ended up having to go to the doctors and she gets uh, visceral reactions. She feels shame when she goes into the doctors because when she was younger, the doctors kept saying to her parents, she's too heavy, put her on a diet. It's not this, she needs to lose weight. It's not, this isn't the problem, she needs to lose weight. So now fast forward 20 years later when this client, this human being, human being has a medical problem. That's what, by the way, what the doctor should be talking about. She's terrified to go to the doctors because she doesn't want to be told if you lose weight, that will help the problem. I don't even know if you have anything to add to that, but it just, you said something about the medical establishment and I thought it, it just, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's one of the, you know, primary ways in which we, again, this idea of like these systems that we've internalized because what she's internalized is the fat phobia that exists inside of the medical system, right? And so now it's not this system or these particular physicians who seem to not want to tend to her actual medical needs, but only want to shame her body. Now it's like, no, my body's wrong, right? And so one of the things that I offer people, particularly, um, I have some great uh, resources um, that folks have shared with me about ways to be advocates for themselves inside of of the medical establishment, particularly because there's such a power differential inside of that space. There's such a, you must be the expert and I'm the idiot, 
you're the expert and I don't know anything. Uh, and so there's a way in which we feel very disempowered when we go into that space. One of the things that I tell doctors all the time is, give me the advice you would give a thin person. Like if, a, if, if somebody came in here with the exact same thing I'm complaining about and they were thin, what would you tell them? Because you wouldn't tell them to lose weight. So there must be other things <laughs> that we can do about this. I would like to start there, you know? <laughs> and, and it's one of those places where it's just an opportunity to be like, hey, I'm going to put you on notice right now that there's an ex expectation about how you treat me that, I, that isn't about my weight. Um, and that, you know, that takes some practice. It takes some building the muscle to stand up for ourselves in that kind of way, which is why it's really important that we be in community around these issues so that we're not just kind of like trying to do it by ourselves and feeling weak and, and all of those sorts of things, but building some, uh, building a fortress of, of support so that we can go in and advocate against these systems on behalf of ourselves. How do doctors respond when you say that? They're flustered. <laughs> I bet. Because no one expects to be called out, whether subtly or, you know, whatever, about their particular ism uh, or obia that is popping up in that moment. Um, but, but usually they, you know, usually in some ways they're just like, well, okay, I would say, you know, I've never had anybody like press back hard. Um, also because, I mean, I'm really, really blessed here in New Zealand to have a primary care physician for the first time in my life who has never, ever, ever said anything about my weight. Never. <laughs> and it's such a, it's such a gift. It's just, it's such an opportunity to just feel like, oh, I might actually get my actual concerns tended for, um, tended to. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're usually a little flustered. Um, but what it does is it rebalances the imbalance of power because I'm I'm not showing up like I expect you I like you have all of the information and I don't know anything I show up like I know I'm the expert in my body and I know you're not because <laughs> you don't even know what it's like to be here you ain't even kicked it with this body before so I'm gonna show up in my expertise around my body and then you're gonna offer me your expertise about all the things you know and we're not even gonna talk about this thing that because here's the deal I mean. And this is why fat phobia is such a dangerous, dangerous aspect of um, bodily oppression is it, it's to me, it's absurd for a doctor to ask me to do something that he or she or they medically know has very, 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 very low chance of occurring or occur, occurring with any sort of sustainability. Like, you know that 5%, <laughs> that I have 5% or less chance of actually losing the weight or keeping it off. So why are you suggesting a thing that has such low efficacy for me? You would not give me a pill that had 5% efficacy. You would not, it wouldn't even be allowed to be on the market if it had 5% efficacy. So why <laughs> are you, why are you prescribing anything with that low of a rate? So let's just take that off. Tell me something that has 80, 90% efficacy and let's start at that treatment plan. <laughs> and after, if not, if all those, we, after we've exhausted all the higher efficacy possibilities, then let's talk about whatever's left at the bottom of the list. But my hunch is we might get to it if we start with the things that have greater efficacy. Again, this takes practice. It takes being, um, it takes building sort of that muscle and it takes being in community. So get some support around it 
practice role play with friends, all of those sorts of things. Take an advocate with you to your doctor's appointments. There are those sorts of things that help us be more empowered in those spaces. I have to imagine people are saying to you, you know, very often, how do I, well, I don't know why I said I have to imagine. I don't know, that just sort of came out of my head. I have to imagine, Sonia. No, I'm actually, I'm wondering, you know, people have said to me in the past, um, I always talk about how community has, community keeps me recovered, community keeps me in love, community keeps me grounded, all this stuff. And clients have often said to me, well, you have community, but I don't. Like you found it, but I can't. And what I say to them is I had to open my eyes and look for it. And I also had to stop looking through the lens that I had been looking through that got me into an eating disorder to find community because not everybody has somebody to take them to the doctors or to go to the doctors with. I gratefully do. I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering what kinds of questions people ask you. You must get so many questions, Sonia. I do get a lot of questions and I try to remind people, I don't have all the answers. <laughs> like, you know, what I, what, what I'm inviting us to do. And I think this is an important part of the work, right? Is that our reflexive response is all the reasons it won't work. Right. That's our, and it's a protective response. It's a, like, it's easier than trying and getting my heart broken again. Right. And so I think that what this invitation to work is, is saying, I can't promise that all of it will work. I can promise that what we're doing doesn't. <laughs> and so if I know what we're doing doesn't, I don't have anything to lose by trying something new. Um, and, you know, and, and I think you're absolutely right about this idea of opening our eyes and, and, and looking differently. Can we see the world with beginner's eyes? Um, can we can we have the experience of, no, I didn't have community, but I also didn't have community because I didn't trust people and I didn't understand and I hadn't made peace with difference. <laughs> and these are all the things that keep us disconnected. So if I start just operating from a new kind of way, if I just start, if I say I'm willing to practice a different level of vulnerability today than I historically would have let myself, what happens then? Right. And so I really encourage people to treat this not as a cure for anything, but to treat it as an experiment. What happens when I experiment with loving myself? What happens when I experiment with not listening to the voices that tell me that I'm deficient? What happens when I experiment with letting myself be in community in places where I normally would? commit to isolation because of embarrassment or fear or shame. Um, you know, it reminds me of a quote from uh, civil rights icon, Fannie Lou Hamer, who said, if I fall, I'm gonna fall five feet, three inches towards my freedom. And that is really what I invite us to do inside of the work of radical self-love is, it's gonna be difficult, it is hard, it is painful. I never told, I never pretend to anybody, this is easy work. I just offer that what we were doing was hard already and it wasn't toward our freedom. So if it's going to be hard anyway, I'd rather it be hard and toward our freedom. I I absolutely agree with that. I there's there's no other way of 
of the, I mean, it was so eloquently put and it's so true. Um, the, the other thing, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm, I, I want people to know that not only is your book just a powerful message that I feel is necessary for everyone. I have, I have all my clients are now reading it and using the workbook. I have had every single client. I'm like, okay, so one thing you're going to do this week is you're going to get this book. And I mean, I sent it to friends. It, it's, it's for everybody. Everybody needs to hear this. There isn't anyone who doesn't need to hear this message. But what I, I just want to add a, a quick little thing, which is you're also funny, Sonia. Like this, you're not just like this serious writer. That's like, you're like talking to the listeners. You're like, if you think this is going to, you know, cure you, nope. If you think it's going to do this, nope. And I'm, I'm like, she's funny. Like you've got this really wonderful way of getting this really difficult information, really necessary information in a really beautiful way to read it. And I just wanted to say that. And you're funny. You are. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, there have been periods of my time. I've always considered, I like, I think I'm funny too. I think I'm funny. It's the Scorpio in us. I think I'm hysterical. I'm, but, but I think because I'm also, I am deep and intense as well. And I'm passionate and I, and I see the issues in the world and I speak to them. And so I do think that people can get, I sometimes forget that I'm funny and I have to remind myself like, no, 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 honey, you're a hoot. So, so I wanted to convey that in the book. I, and, and it's so important in messages like this and messages that are such hard work. They're like, Hey, I'm inviting you to to plumb the inner dark caverns of your soul, um, we're going to have to bring some levity to that, lest no one decide to go, right? And so it's important for me to be like, it's hard and it can be light and we can laugh and we can hold each other through it. Let's have the whole experience. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel the same way. And and I I I bring some humor to my work with my clients and 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 their families. And by the way, eating disorders are not funny. Like I am not saying Sonia that there's anything funny about eating disorders, human suffering, anything about that. But like you said, every once in a while we just need to uh, it's it's too hard to stay in that darkness all the time. And also when I say things funny, I'm usually laughing at myself. I would never, <laughs> would never make fun of a client, but I, I just think I'm hysterical. So anyway. And, and life is funny, right? Like life is both tragic and hilarious. Like we are both suffering and sometimes falling out in laughter. And if we can't have the full range of our human experience and emotions, then, then we're, we're putting a lid on a key part of our radical self-love journey, which is, can I be all of me? So yeah, Sonia, I I am sorry to say that we're we're getting close to the end. I I'm wondering if there's anything I didn't ask you that you'd want to share. Anything that you want to say? I don't know. I mean, I could I could sit and do this for hours, but I don't know if the listeners could hear for hours. So I'm sure they could actually, because we're funny. <laughs> we're awesome. I think we're 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 a riot. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're taking this on the road. Right. <laughs> Every night. Um, so I think, so here's what I would love for people to do as you listen. is So the workbook is 
probably the place where I'm feeling the most sort of nervousness because it's a, it's new in the sense that like these activities and all of these things are really new. They're me saying, let's try a thing. Um, and, and I've also not actually had a chance to touch the physical copy of, a work, of the workbook yet. <laughs> I'm in New Zealand. It's on its way to me somewhere. So I, I haven't even touched this workbook yet. So yeah, I think it's funny that I have it and you don't. I don't. I don't. So, so right now you all are out there in the world with my baby. I haven't even seen my baby yet. So please tell me about the baby. Tell me about your experience with it. I would love to know how, how the workbook is working with folks. And so I really invite people to share that with me. And, you know, you can share it on Instagram at Sonia Renee Taylor, or you can shoot me an email at Sonia Renee at Sonia Renee Taylor.com. But yeah, share your stories with me. I would love that. Sonia, again, it it is it's it really is an honor to sit with you and have this conversation. And and I feel such gratitude that that all the listeners are going to hear this and and hopefully get your book and in the workbook and and just move to a a a, a bigger place in life. You know what I mean? A, a richer place in life. And I I don't mean that financially. So. So very beautiful. Thank you so much for for reading it and sharing it with so many people and giving me a chance to talk about it. Oh, it's out there. It's out there. <laughs> I I do I do have one more question though. I I always ask at, at the end of every episode. I have to ask one question not related to anything that we're talking about. And my question for you, Sonia, is if somebody were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Uh, oh my gosh, um, bathroom stall just gives it a context. Right? <laughs> Let's see, um, on a bathroom stall, they would say, um, <laughs> for radical self-love, call 027. <laughs> That's brilliant. And for those of you who are in my age group, I would say for, for radical self-love, call 555 Five 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 five. Do you remember that? Like on old TV shows, like everything was like five five five. Everything was all the numbers, yeah. Or five 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 one two one two. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Sonia, again, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. Thank you all for listening, and I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com dot com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week.